Hello, everyone, and welcome back. We are so happy to have you here. I am Sam Futrell, Virginia Council for Social Studies board member and host for today's episode. I hope you all are having a lovely holiday season and taking care of yourselves during a time in our lives, which can only be described as absolutely bananas. Um, And I know I speak for everyone at VCSS when I say that we hope you all get some rest and relaxation over the holidays. So today's episode is extremely timely and incredibly special because I was able to talk with two education experts from C-SPAN about the presidential transition of power, both what it looks like logistically, how it has looked historically, and how we can apply lessons from this topic to our social studies classroom. Pam McGorry is a senior education program specialist at C-SPAN and leads professional development sessions with educators and social studies leaders in their schools across the U.S., as well as in C-SPAN offices to demonstrate how to incorporate C-SPAN resources into curricula. She also creates content for C-SPAN Classroom and prior to joining the network was a classroom teacher to fourth and fifth grade students. Tom Green also started in the classroom teaching AP courses to high school students in Charles County, Maryland. Now he is C-SPAN Classrooms Content Specialist and is responsible for creating lesson plans covering the hundreds of thousands of resources available in C-SPAN's video library for teachers around the country. I was thrilled to have Pam and Tom on this episode, and as someone who is not very well-versed in government-related topics, I have to say that I learned so much from them. Um, And even if you are not a government teacher, this episode is going to be applicable to your classroom in one way or another. So without further ado, Pam McGorry and Tom Green on Presidential Transitions of Power. Well, Tom and Pam, welcome to Content to Classroom. We are thrilled to have you and the C-SPAN education team here tonight to record about the presidential transition of power, both what's going on right now and what has happened throughout history. So let's just dive right in. Tom, can you tell us a little bit about your background, what you do at C-SPAN and kind of how you came to your role there? Sure. Uh, so I'm, my name's Tom Grain. Um, I'm a former social studies teacher. I taught uh, for about six years uh, in Maryland. I taught high school government to ninth graders, and then I also taught a AP human geography class uh, to mostly seniors. Um, so after that, I um, taught at Northern Virginia Community College. I didn't teach at uh, Northern Virginia Community College. I, was, I served as the dual enrollment uh, coordinator there. Um, and then about three years ago, 2017, um, I was hired here at C-SPAN uh, in their education department. Um, so what my job really entails is I'm the content specialist. So um, our C-SPAN classroom website um, is updated daily. Um, so it's updated with current events. Um, it's updated with lesson plans that are either topical or historical in nature. And so one of my uh, jobs as a part of this team, and Pam will talk a little bit about what she does too, um, is to curate some of the content for the emails, um, formulate some of the plans for what we want to focus on um, coming into like the new year and some of the weekly emails we do. Um, so that's really encapsulates what I what I do at C-SPAN Classroom. 
Man, that sounds like a dream job. I, <laughs> I, I think teachers are going to be interested in just how you even got that job because that sounds like so much fun. Um, Pam, what about you? Tell us a little bit about your background, what you do at C-SPAN, and kind of how your role differs from Tom. Well, my name is Pam McGorry. Thank you for having me. And my interest in education really began with my own children. And it was through their experiences that I decided to pursue a career in education. So I started as a teaching assistant and pursued my degrees in education in the evening and eventually got my own classroom. So I really spent my time at the fourth and fifth grade level. But it was my experiences during that time that really motivated me to want to broaden my reach in education. So I began exploring options and found my way to C-SPAN. So as part of this team, I manage our programs which include professional development opportunities and outreach. I create content and collaborate with our team to execute our student documentary competition, which we can talk about a little bit later and work with press during our major initiatives. Uh, again, another dream job. I, just, <laughs> I think everyone listening is just going to be incredibly jealous of both of you. Um, so, so Pam, let's just talk about C-SPAN Classroom because I, I've heard of C-SPAN Classroom and I've been using it um, for a while now, but I can imagine that some teachers, when they hear C-SPAN, they just think of what you put on in the background, you know, while you're doing your dishes and things like that, just so you can stay up to date um, with what's going on in Congress and other things. So what is C-SPAN Classroom and how do you all serve teachers? C-SPAN Classroom is the education arm of C-SPAN Television Networks. And our team works with C-SPAN's programs on public affairs, the branches of government, American history, and nonfiction books to create free video-based education resources for teachers to use in their classrooms. We also offer professional development experiences and conduct a video documentary competition for middle and high school students called Student Camp. So can you tell us a little bit more about your professional development um, work that you all do? Because that is, I just have heard so many good things about uh, your professional development at C-SPAN. And actually one of our other board members, Kim Hammers, was actually part of a program and she could not say enough good things about it. I think she was there my first summer. Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, yeah, we really love connecting with teachers during our professional development experiences. So every summer we host day and a half conferences for middle and high school teachers where we fly roughly 30 for each conference into our offices and host them. So we walk them through all the free resources that we have. They get to hear from members of C-SPAN staff and leaders at C-SPAN and really get that hands-on workshop experience so they get familiar with our content and get to network and learn how to incorporate our resources into their classroom. So that's one thing we do. The other opportunity we have is a four-week fellowship program. And we usually select three teachers from around the country to join us for four weeks in the month of July. And it's really collaborative experience. So they come with ideas of content they'd like to see created in the classroom and we have our ideas. And so it is through that cooperative, collaborative experience that we create new content and resources for teachers to use in their classroom. We had a 
shift those experiences this past summer. And we are going to be doing that in July of 2021 as well to a digital platform because of COVID. And uh, that just you know, opened up whole new learning experiences for all of us. So we were able to reach teachers all over the country. So teachers who wouldn't be able to necessarily make it to our conferences, they were able to join us for our conferences. We held one for middle school, one for high school. Those were three hours in length. And our fellowship, we were able to expand to five and it was a virtual experience. So uh, we were able to collaborate with those teachers as well. Again, they're really geared for middle and high school teachers. So if anyone listening is considering options for July, 2021, keep those in mind. We will post information about those opportunities on our website. If you go to cspan.org slash classroom, there's a teacher's opportunities tab there. And we will update that with uh, details of dates, times and application for our fellowship. The other one that we offer is through our online professional development Zoom sessions. And those have really been a hit. We've been able to connect with teachers and students all across the country. We're happy to schedule a date and time to connect with, we've done it with one teacher, we've done it with multiple teachers, colleagues. If you are having a PD day in your district, just connect with us. We're happy to walk you through all of the resources and talk about ways you might be able to implement them with your students in your classroom. So those are the three professional development experiences that we have. Oh my gosh, that is amazing. Tom, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, and the one thing um, that Pam had mentioned about the fellowship program, um, they give us ideas about how we could improve our, um, what we offer on our website and how we feature our resources. Um, but one thing they really get to do, and this is something that all teachers can do, um, is explore a video library. So our video library has, uh, what's it, 270,000 hours of uh, digital footage, anything that's aired on the network since, what is it, 80, 1987, Pam, is that right? Mm -hmm. um, and it's all searchable and it's all available for teachers to make clips of and then use it in their classroom. So um, hopefully um, I'll show you a couple things that we've created and then um, inspire some teachers to um, find new and fun ways to utilize that. It's really a cool tool into their, their classroom themselves. And would you say that those programs are primarily for uh, teachers who are focusing on civics and government, or can it expand to, you know, American history teachers who all should be interested in applying to these things? I mean, last year we had somebody who taught AP Human Geography and then really built, uh, built out the AP Human Geography section. Um, I'm always interested in finding new ways that we can use C-SPAN class or, or C-SPAN uh, in, in different classrooms. Um, yeah, we've had American history teachers before. Pam, what, what did you want to? I was going to say we even had a media teacher for our documentary competition. He has been participating for years now, has been very successful, and he was willing to share his expertise with teachers around the country. So he approached us. We said, why not? It doesn't hurt to approach us with an idea or submit an application because you just never know. I mean, these opportunities really give us uh, the chance to learn from teachers and they're in the classroom. You know, we've been out of it a few years, so we get to hear from them. They get to hear from us. And it really is a great learning experience. It's a two way street. So certainly would never want to dissuade anybody from doing from at least applying. Mm -hmm. And you, if you think about all the, the vast topics that 
we cover on the network, anything from environmental science, anything from economics, like to super in-depth mac uh, macro and microeconomics, anything that you can really think of has some sort of touch with the government um, and how public policy is shaped. So there's numbers, a number of ways you can really um, use C-SPAN in, in, in the classroom. So yeah, if you want to apply, uh, it'll be on the website. Absolutely. Yeah. Say there's something for everyone on C-SPAN. Absolutely. And we will link all of those um, amazing resources into our show notes as well so that all of our listeners can apply. And hopefully you'll just have an influx of Virginia teachers for these positions. And we're going to vie for them uh, like crazy this year. Um, so today we are talking about the transition of presidential power, uh, which is currently happening right now in our country. Uh, but obviously the transition of presidential power has taken place over hundreds of years and there is a history and there is a tradition associated with this transition of presidential power. So historically, what does this transition look like in the White House, Tom? Um, I think it, the, the broad answer to that, it really depends. Um, it depends on kind of when it was in, throughout history. It depends on the circumstances between the elections. It depends on the personalities of the the presidents at the time. Um, it also depends on what laws were in place too. Um, so even within our lives, lifetimes, it's that process has changed and that process has been altered. Um, even in the last what, five years, there's been new laws uh, relating to it. Um, so I think it's a good way if you're teaching this to look at the difference between like legal uh, statutes versus what norms and what precedents are really occurring. Um, but there's really two types of transitions that occurred. There's a transition between the campaign and the the actual transition team. So going from being a candidate to actually being uh, ready to govern. But then it's the transition between the two presidents too. Um, so I assume that's probably what you wanted to, to focus on. Um, but um, what, what I wanted to show you and show and kind of use as something that we can jump off of um, is something that's a part of one of our lessons that we um, looked at with presidential transition. And it's a clip of Stephen Hadley, who's the former national security advisor for George W. Bush, um, talking about his experience with presidential transitions uh, in the 70s. And then again, um, later on from in the 2009 transition. So Uh, you know, just a little perspective. I was on a transition from President Ford to President Carter. And to show you how different it was in the day, uh, then all of the NSC staff under President Ford was let go. I was one of three or four people asked to stay on under the new administration. So when the new team came in, there was basically no staff in the National Security Council. Second thing is when I came into, into the office on the 21st of January, uh, and turned to the safes in my office, which all the documents are held, all because the documents were all gone. Their presidential records, they left with the new administration. So when the new team started to fill in, there was no paper record in the White House. That's sort of where we started. I would call it a non-transition in terms of national security. Um, the, the, the contrast then was for uh, for the for the Bush team to try to help the Obama team, 
to be able to hit the ground running. And we did that in a variety of ways. And in the of course, the process was run by the chief of staff, Josh Bolton. But on the national security side, since it is a presidential transition, national security advisor is a bit kind of coordinator of the team. We encourage the cabinet secretaries to meet with their successors individually, talk about their uh, departments, talk about the issues that were uh, at stake. Uh, we also had a series of briefings on substantive issues uh, in which the national security teams of the outgoing Bush administration and the incoming Obama administration met together, and we would talk through where we were on various uh, issues. So it's a good example of showing how things have done in the past, both successfully and unsuccessfully. Um, and I think it's important for students to understand that as much as this is kind of a, a legal process, there's also a lot of wiggle room between what different administrations decide to do. Um, so what administrations decide to do in terms of working with the other administration um, and also how they approach this transition. Um, so one thing that the lesson that uh, we have on our website really does, it uses these primary sources to have students identify the challenges, challenges and I think there's about four or five clips similar to this, um, but they identify challenges that are occurring and that occurred usually during this period and then what strategies um, work best. So it gives them the agency to really see if they were in this position, how would they address it based on what they already know. Um, so I think that's an important thing to look at is these past challenges and these strategies that other administrations have done and then apply them to today. Um, so that's really what a lot of what, we're, uh, what we do here. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah. Go ahead. Oh, no, go ahead. I was going to say that, uh, yeah, I've, I, I remembered when Obama was taking office that Bush had mentioned that he wanted it to be the smoothest transition um, of presidential power in history. And, you know, what Stephen Hadley was saying there seemed like they were really working towards that goal. And it seemed as if also that that was a sort of, if, I can editorialize and I will because I'm the host, but, um, but, <laughs> but that seemed like a mature response to what they had come into with uh, the Clinton administration where there was almost no uh, assistance there really given. And, you know, I could definitely see some of my students looking through that and, you know, I could see them saying, well, yeah, that's what I would do. I would be like, forget you, you know, like you can come into this, this uh, position and make it what you will. Um, but I think that's so smart to have them go through and identify the strategies uh, to what actually works well in this transition of power, because ultimately that's a level of diplomacy and a level of um, public service that politicians should really be giving, you know, the public, because that, that is really important, I think, in general, to make sure that the transition of power is smooth and is providing to the safety and well-being of the people of the United States, you know. And so to build off of that, how does the federal government even prepare the president-elect and sort of read them in so that they are ready to take office on January 20th? Um, so there's a number of different laws that are set up. So there's the Presidential Transition Act of 1963. Um, 
but then there's also a couple other ones that are fine-tuned that process that allow a setup of um, the transitions from, um, for both candidates um, to prepare them for it. Um, so a lot of it's going to be working with some of these uh, career people within the agencies and the departments um, to prepare like briefing books and things like that. Um, but there's a significant difference between the laws and then actually what takes place. Yeah, absolutely. And and actually, Pam, since you have all of this expertise in the in the elementary level, we have a lot of uh, our teachers who listen to the podcast and work with VCSS are working at the elementary level as well. And I could definitely see them listening to all of this and feeling, you know, a little overwhelmed, but at the same time, so fascinated because it really is. I mean, it's so incredibly intricate. Uh, it seems like this machine that has so many different working parts and those parts seem to change constantly. So for our elementary teachers, uh, what are the things that our youngest learners should know about the office of the president and the transition of this power in the United States? We know standards vary in districts throughout the country, right, at all levels. So when thinking broadly and from a foundational perspective, I think understanding the basic structure of the office and the responsibilities associated with it are important to uh, develop civic knowledge, but applying that information to generate connections, I think is essential as well. And if I can just take a moment, I wanna share something because it's, it's a moment, you know, we all have those teachable moments, right? As, uh, as teachers, it was, I was in a fifth grade class and we were learning about the executive branch and the election during campaign season. And we were actually viewing C-SPAN and students started asking questions such as what's a primary, what's a caucus, why do they matter in an election? And from there, we learned about these components, which is what they needed to know about, but students began to drive their own learning. You know, they hear all kinds of conversations. So let's bring that into the classroom and see how we can use that so they can apply what, what, what they're hearing and what they're learning. So they asked, can we have a caucus and a primary in our room? And we did. So that was just such a defining moment for me because I saw them learn to listen respectfully, to listen to other people's opinions. And it was fun to watch them to decide for themselves what they thought on a particular candidate. Did it stay the same? Did, it, did their opinion change? But that stayed with me. And so that's what I think about learning those basics and then applying what they know and making it meaningful so that it has a connection. So at any level, they can drive their own learning, ask those questions that they're interested in learning more about, but then decide for themselves. So we can play a portion of a clip that offers students information about the logistics of Inauguration Day so they get an idea of what happens on January 20th. So here we can listen to former White House Chief Usher Gary Walters talk about the history. As far as the staff goes, the staff will starting to be making the preparations for the move out of one family and the move in of a second family. The uh, sitting first family, it's their home until noon on inaugural day and the staff makes every effort to see that the family is not slighted in any way, that they're taken care of, that it's their home. When the sitting president and the president-elect and their families depart from the North Portico and head down to Capitol Hill, that's when things get a little crazy. Um, I've referred to it many times as organized chaos. One family's belongings are moved out and the other family's belongings are moved in. 
with the important thing of trying to get the house established by the time they get finished with the inaugural parade, around five o'clock in the evening um, on inaugural day, that they walk into a house that's been transformed into their house and something that they're comfortable with. The things that they've chosen, the pieces of furniture, the pieces of artwork um, that can be changed out, all those things are done when they walk in the door. There's no boxes over in the corner that haven't been unpacked. They're all gone and out of the way. And of course, the American people always have a great interest in what the president does in the Oval Office. And that also takes place on inaugural day. Um, presidents very soon after coming back in from the inaugural um, parade like to go over and go into their office, which has been converted to their office with the items that they want to represent their administration. So I think that's just a great glimpse of a behind the scenes uh, in, you know, clip uh, bet between what's happening on the, you know, in between election and inauguration day. So students hear what's going on as a new president is getting sworn in. You know, what would they want to bring to the office, to, to their office if they were redesigning it? or if they were moving into the White House. So making that connection, so thank you. It's such, a, it's such a concrete example too, like where it's a literal change of power. Like I think it goes, I think the clip goes on to say like there's one elevator that goes up with one president's stuff and one elevator that goes down with the other president's stuff. Yeah, so, especially now we're hearing it's going to look a little different with COVID and all those challenges. What is that going to look like? having all these you know, restrictions or protections in place. So stay tuned for more information on what that's gonna look like. I think it also stresses the importance of the White House as like the seat of power too. Um, so the significance of the White House, the building being that it represents the executive branch. So like that literal change going on at, at, at noon on the 20th signifies that peaceful transfer of power, which I think is kind of neat. I like that clip too. Yeah, that's amazing. And I, I think that's a really appropriate clip for our, our younger learners, because I think that focus of cultural history can really get lost kind of in the woodwork sometimes. And we, and that's such a, just something that they could imagine, you know, and really visualize. And like you said, Tom, I mean, it really emphasizes the White House as the seat of power in the United States. And, and it is a functioning home in addition to that. And so all of those logistics, I think, uh, are just incredibly fascinating. But also, like you said, um, Pam, just really in, interesting for our students and kind of uh, a way for them to make things personal to them as well. Like you said, like, what would I bring to my office if I was president of the United States? And having that sort of introspection, I think, really allows them to identify things that they find important in their lives. And that can be part of social emotional learning as well. And also, it can really, again, make the this kind of figurehead of government, which sometimes seems so distant to us, can make them seem very close and personal. I think, and anyone who's ever like gone through a move knows how truly personal it is, especially if you're moving all of your stuff and then whenever you get home from this inauguration, oh, I live here now and now I have to go to work. So I think all of that is just like, it's encapsulated by this, this, this transition of power into that, that, the, the White House itself. Yeah, I think it's fun to visualize, especially with the young learners, and it'd be neat to hear those conversations, uh, what they would want to bring and what they find important. And 
to think outside of themselves, you know, what else we need to function as a family here or to get the job done. Yeah, and pets, because pets are coming back to the White House. So including pets, sorry. (laughs) Yes, no, it's so important. I mean, absolutely. And also just thinking too that, you know, we're going to talk about media in a little bit, but, you know, just thinking too about the fact that, that the, the White House, as they have it, would be photographed, you know, and would be memorialized in a way. And so at a certain point, you know, you can bring in and make things as personal as you can, but at the same time, you're still sort of curating a space that is public. And so that can be an interesting thing to talk about as well. Even um, like the symbolism of like what paintings you put up, um, so like what paintings you put up, what pictures you have in your background uh, whenever you're in the Oval Office, that all gets micro, uh, put under a microscope uh, for everyone to really analyze and dissect. Yeah, you want to talk about connections. Think of all the students learning from home now. Everything that they have going on in their backgrounds and they connect with each other and what that says about you. And yep, a lot of connectable moments. That's a good point. And when you come to our website, we offer a variety of, of resources on this topic as well as others. So we have our current events video clips, which are short videos with vocabulary terms that are updated regularly throughout the week. So those can be used you know, in the beginning as uh, class conversation starters. We also have bell ringers, which are really popular with teachers. So they have vocabulary and discussion questions that accompany those. Teachers will use those to introduce the topic sometimes in the beginning of class. Sometimes they'll assign it for homework. Some teachers like to switch gears in the middle of class and play that short video and others might use it as an exit assessment. We have lesson plans and those are designed with several video clips that have an introduction, an exploration, they have an activity, extension activities. Teachers will use those videos sometimes as a jigsaw method with students. Some will use them even in breakout rooms during Zoom if you wanna jigsaw that way. Uh, So they're really flexible because they're designed more in in a more general way, recognizing that different districts and different teachers use different templates for lesson plans. So those are really popular, uh, especially now, whether you're teaching in person, hybrid, or using a distance model. We have our constitution clips, which is really fun. It's the text of the constitution paired with short C-SPAN video clips that show that provision in action or provide an explanation. And that's really popular among middle school teachers because it, it shows students just how relevant this document still is today. We have our On This Day in History events, which uh, those collections are designed really about key historical topics. So again, a few video clips with each, provide an introduction, background information. It's really neat when we have eyewitness videos to talk about their experiences on that particular day and usually a a wrap up or a legacy clip. So, you know, to learn about lessons from that experience. Uh, Another one, which is really popular is our deliberations website. So those are really in-depth lesson plans that are fleshed out on issues that are being discussed and debated in the country. So those are designed with a few videos that provide background information. And then we'll have generally the two leading sides representing different 
perspectives on that issue, you know, in the way C-SPAN covers things. I mean, we're completely nonpartisan. We provide multiple perspectives on an issue. And the goal there is, is to provide viewers with access to, to people who they might not ordinarily get access to if they're calling into our Washington Journal Morning Program or how we cover events, giving different perspectives so you can decide what you think on that issue. And that's what we try to do with deliberations is provide students with different perspectives. And through those activities and class conversations, they can determine what they think on an issue. I think that covers it, Tom, did I? Yeah, just to reiterate kind of what, what Sam had said, um, that all the clips that we've really shown are from, or not shown because this is a podcast, but you know what I mean. Uh, <laughs> um, all the clips that we've featured are from lessons that we have on our website. So we have a lesson that's specifically on the transition. We have some bell ringers on um, how presidents form their cabinets. Um, we have a one of our featured resources sites is um, our campaign 2020 site, which goes from the presidential announcements the whole way to inauguration. So it walks through all of our video resources through the primaries, through the primary debates, through the actual conventions to the uh, president general presidential debates, the whole way through the transition process, and then it'll end at the inauguration. So those are just some of the resources that we have. Um, and like Pam said, all of this is video-based um, and it's easily adaptable for digital learning or face-to-face. Uh, -face. And so those are our resources. And if I can just piggyback with our project, uh, I have to mention Student Camp, right? It's our annual middle uh, documentary competition for middle and high school students. So each year we conduct this, this documentary and it's, uh, we award 150 prizes, totaling $100,000. And um, the deadline is January 20th. So this year we are asking students to select an issue that they want the new president or new Congress to address in 2021. So they can pick a topic that interests them, look at different sides of the issue, get out there and interview people in their community, uh, interview experts, they can do that through Zoom or uh, FaceTime. Students are getting very creative with that. Include a little bit of C-SPAN video and then put it together and submit it to us by January 20th. So it's just another civic uh, project-based learning experience that students can uh, gain some civic knowledge and experience with. Man, all of those are amazing. I really hope that our listeners are just thinking I, at least this is what I'm thinking, is that this is just a wealth of resource. I mean, what an incredible, incredible, um, honestly, just well of like resources that we have gotten just talking to you. And I love that um, this, did you say it was called Student Cam? Student Cam, yep. Go to studentcam.org. Yep, okay. Mm -hmm. Perfect. Yeah. I love, um, I love that project because, you know, you said now that it's actually, it's kind of easy with FaceTiming and Zoom and things like that. It's almost more convenient to interview people. Uh, you know, I'm thinking even with us today, if we hadn't been kind of, you know, indoctrinated in our Zoom life, then uh, I probably would have come to DC or something, you know, and we would have figured something out to meet up. Uh, but now this is just so much more convenient. And I think that makes things so much more accessible for our students as well. Um, so this is a really great time to enter into uh, a contest like that. Yeah. All right. Um, 
So we are living in a time right now uh, where the media has an incredibly influential role in public opinion. And my students are actually really interested in this as well. A lot of them ask questions about the media's role in the election. And then now in this sort of interim time that we are in at the moment. So especially with the advent of social media apps, those opinions tend to trickle down to even our youngest students uh, through Instagram and even now TikTok, uh, which uh, seems crazy to me, but but it's happening um, <laughs> on a daily basis. And so I'm wondering, Tom, how do you and or how does uh, C-SPAN kind of see the media coverage of this presidential election and how has it influenced the popular opinion of President Trump and President-elect Biden? And I guess building off of that too, how has the media surrounding this election differed sort of from the past? Yeah, sure. Um, so one thing I think if you, or if your students watch C-SPAN, um, we have a morning program, um, which is the, the Washington Journal program. And part of what the Washington Journal program does is it has people call in um, and respond to different uh, questions and different uh, prompts that they have. And one thing that you can really tell from that is how polarized media it can be. Um, so one thing that uh, C-SPAN will do, they'll show something from one left-leaning uh, media outlet and one more right-leaning uh, media outlet. Um, but people all over the country have different opinions based on what they really, um, how they get their news. Um, and I think that's one thing that's really been been dividing even more so over the last 20 years of, um, with cable news. And then, like you were mentioning, with social media. Um, now, instead of choosing between one cable news or another cable news, you can choose your Twitter feed or you can choose your Instagram feed. I don't know. <laughs> feed or something. <laughs> um, yeah. Where it's curated based on your specific interests. So now you're your students will probably see things that just apply to them and what they're talking about um, and then what, and what they are um, interested in. Um, so I think that really shapes how people get their news and what they see as news. Um, it also stresses really the importance of digital liter literacy skills and news media skills too. And th this isn't something that's new. Um, it's just something that's kind of really been um, increasing over the last couple of years or so. Um, Can and, I jump in? I just, yeah. just want to add uh, the way we cover things. And I think that that's a really important piece too, is C-SPAN will show up an event, turn the cameras on a few minutes before, air that event in its entirety and leave the cameras on a few minutes after so that people feel like they're in the room. They get the whole story, not just a little snippet. We don't have reporters. We don't have anybody interpreting anything that, that you're hearing. It's a primary source. So you can decide again for yourself what you think on an issue, which is why we even we cover a variety of, of candidates, not just the leading two. So I think that's just, I just want to reiterate that point is that we do cover things, you know, like gavel gavel when the House and Senate are in session, or you'll hear a whole speech or debate in its entirety. So I just wanted to Reinforced. Um, and then speaking of primaries, I, if we can, I wanted to show a, um, a quick clip of George W. Bush talking about this issue. And this was, I think, in 2010 or 2011 um, when he spoke to um, our C-SPAN's founder, Brian Lamb, 
um, after he left office. It was a couple of years after he left office about the media. Later on, uh, yet the death spiral, the death spiral of decency during my time in office, exacerbated by the advent of 24-hour cable news and hyper-partisan political yeah. blogs and on. Bring not, that to today. And not enough C-SPAN. In other words, there's right. not enough kind of sober analysis where people can come on your show. I'm pandering, of course, now, but people can come on it your works. show. It works. <laughs> <laughs> but people can come on and discuss things in a, in a way that uh, is not uh, highly emotional and um, uh, doesn't have an edge to it. And, but, but politics is edgy. And part of the problem is, is that with the 24-7 news cycle, in order for people to gain market share, they have to scream loudly and they have to you know, make a case in an exaggerated way to be noticed. And uh, so in, in one way, the 24-7 news cycle is great because it gives people, consumers a lot of choice. In another way, it creates a pretty hostile atmosphere at times. So even though that was uh, around 10 years ago, it's, I mean, it's still, it's still relevant today. Um, it's probably even more relevant today if you take that, what he was talking about with um, cable news and taking it to social media, where it's whoever has a really engaging tweet, that's what gets noticed, that's what gets the likes. Um, so yeah, I think that's really how people perceive, um, to bring it back to your question, how people perceive the election and also the kind of this transition period, it's all based on what they're seeing on their feeds, either Facebook, Twitter, or whatever. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. And I, I think what President Bush said there that that was interesting is he says, you know, the the advent of the 24-7 news cycle produces a lot of good things like choice. Um, but then it also can feed into sort of uh, the more baser sides of capitalism, which is involves, you know, like he said, screaming as loudly as you can to make sure that your network is getting um, as much attention as possible. And so, and I think that it's interesting because, because now, you know, with these apps where you mentioned, Tom, that you can sort of curate exactly what information you're given. I think that the choice has increased but then with our students, we have to do a lot of work with talking about, well, what are you choosing and why are you choosing it? And so that all kind of goes back to information literacy. And so Pam, I'm sort of interested for you, considering that our students are inundated with information from so many different media outlets, uh, teaching information literacy in the social studies classroom is more important than ever. So how can teachers at both the elementary and the secondary levels, reinforce this skill with our students? I think this is an ongoing conversation even Tom had touched on previously, is just as platforms emerge and evolve and more and more people learn how to code. Uh, so reinforcing the idea of evaluating those sources of information, taking it one step further, giving students that experience in the classroom before they dive into research for a project is key. Uh, but we do, we have a deliberations lesson on fake news to help teach about this topic. And I think, Tom, you wanna queue it up? We can take a listen to a portion of a program in which a First Amendment attorney talks about the issues in uh, problems in identifying fake news. Yep. In a world of alternative facts, um, who do you turn to? I mean, it used to be the media model is that you had 
expert gatekeepers, the large established organizations, whether it's the, the broadcast networks or the major newspapers that serve that gatekeeper function, sometimes well, sometimes badly. Um, but as media has become more democratized through the Internet, you've had a number of different things going on. One is the economic base for traditional media has been eroded. So they do have less uh, strength to uh, stand up to pressures from government or from other institutions. Uh, you have less trust because media uh, sources have become more diffused. Uh, and then it becomes more incumbent upon the individual to be able to evaluate information and to make critical judgments about what is likely to be true, what is not. You can't just rely, you can't just trust on an authoritative source to tell you um, as existed in the previous media model. And so it becomes uh, more difficult and more pressure is, is placed on the individual. What we really badly need is more education and critical thinking skills uh, in media literacy uh, so that when someone comes forward with their alternative facts, uh, you're able to, the, you know, the general public is able to evaluate that and um, make, make better judgments. But it's part of the good news and bad news about the Internet. It has democratized information so that every individual has access to a global platform. But it also has made it so that the average reader, the average viewer, uh, has no real anchor for determining what is real and what is. Um, if teachers want to take a look at that lesson, uh, there are a variety of other clips that are associated with it. And they go on to talk about the impact of fake news on elections, on democracy, the financial incentives, as well as the roles of media and government. So teachers can use it with their students and they can explore different sides of this issue and engage it in a discussion, apply their own experiences to what they're seeing and what they're hearing um, and to question what they're hearing, not just take it at you know, face value. Yeah, I think the questioning part is really the key. Um, so understanding that there are different levels of information and then there's also different possible biases and possible different motives that people have when they put stuff on the internet or on news or, or whatever. Um, but I think the question, questioning and those critical thinking skills and also being a, able to understand what you were saying, Pam, with that financial model of media, like how money or how some of these media companies make money, how some of these like tweets and how, how that really works. Um, I think that's really essential first before you get into like some of these skills, just understanding the base of it. Yeah, that's what I think before you dive into that research, just you know, back it up a little bit and do a little bit of laying the foundation, given the experience of evaluating different sources. You know, go to the about section of something to read about where, wherever you are, wherever you're getting your information from. I think even even more so sometimes um, looking at how data and graphs and maps can also tell a story that might not be there too. Um, so maybe for some of the advanced students looking at like how charts and graphs can represent something that might not be, be there or how a map might be able to show something um, or might mislead uh, people to think one way or the other. Um, but yeah, I think those are all important skills um, for students to have as they become adults and become voters and citizens. Yeah, and just to build off of that a little bit, I think that the talking about maps and graphs and charts and all of those things, just the ability to analyze 
data, I think is a skill that is incredibly necessary. And it's actually something that we do in my classes, like in a really brief way, but like very, very often. And we do it through warm up, like as our warm up, a lot of the time, you know, we'll show a map, we'll show a graph and we'll say, you know, what is this? What is this showing us right now? Like, and then you look at the intention of the creator and then you look at uh, who created what we know about them, but then also what the data is actually reflective of. Um, so I think that that is absolutely true, Tom. I think a good example of that is if you look at the electoral college map mm -hmm. and you look at it state by state and you see all the red, but you don't look at population and you don't look at some of the other factors in there where the electoral college counts count more than actual the size of a Nebraska or the size of North Dakota. Um, so I think that, I mean, when I was teaching, that was a, a big thing where looking at kind of these, these core plus maps that have these different colorings based on some sort of thing, but expanding and kind of figuring out what that actually means. Yeah, and it's really interesting to use that, especially with young learners too, in my experience with that electoral college map and the different colors. Again, just let them drive their own learning. They're gonna ask questions about what interests them and what piques their curiosity and then having those discussions. And it's really neat to hear what they have to say at even younger levels as why, or looking at those changes over time, why this happened. And even look at now with COVID, it's gonna be really interesting to see what happens after this census moving into next year with the whole new process of uh, redistricting and, and all of that, it'll be interesting to see how, how things change and demographics of cities and, and rural areas. So um, I think it's an incredible opportunity for students to evaluate those kinds of things. And, and to, you know, I remember teaching and using teachers of other subjects to reinforce what you're all teaching at the math, working with social studies, working with, uh, you know, the literature teacher, I think is really important. Yeah, I totally agree. I think that that interdisciplinary learning can be really helpful, not only for our teachers, because it helps us feel like what we're teaching can be reinforced in other classes. But I think it's really helpful for students as well, um, because that continuity is really something that they're able to hold on to and really helps them grasp uh, the ideas and the skills that we're trying to reinforce in the classroom. And one term that I just wanted to pull from the video that we just watched is just uh, that I just found really interesting. And I don't even know if there's a question in here, but I just loved how he used the term, the democratization of information. And it, when I heard that, it reminded me of how in my class, we talk about uh, slavery and how during kind of the second great awakening, there was this, there was, there were all the laws put on uh, preventing enslaved people from learning how to read and write in the South and how that limitation of knowledge was used uh, to try to prevent people from really having agency in any way. But now it's, we're almost sort of seeing a reverse in, all, in some ways. And it's so positive in so many ways, because like I said, 
you know, I'm sitting in my class and kids are looking at the electoral college map on their own without, without being prompted. And that's amazing and beautiful. But like you said, Pam, I mean, it's these, these critical analysis, these critical reasoning skills that are so, so important to develop so that when they are able to look at these maps and, you know, be inundated with this information, um, that in a really beautiful way is available to us all, they can still have the agency to understand it, you know, and be able to analyze it. Um, and I think that kind of brings us, we just have one more question before we look at some of our student questions. Um, and so Tom, I'm curious for you as kind of our content expert here and uh, on the presidential transition of power, how do successes or failures in the transition of power affect the elect uh, and the incumbent? And how important is the inaugural address as well in terms of setting the stage for the president's term in office? Um, well, let me address the first one. And then if I get distracted and don't address the second one, remind me. So I think, it, I mean, the president elect and then also the outgoing president have two different priorities really one's looking at legacy and kind of what they're um how they're remembered and the other one's really looking at how they're going to move forward um so i think they have sometimes competing priorities at times um but the more they work together i think the better it is for both of them um and i think pam had uh clipped some stuff about the um james buchanan lincoln um transition in 1860 and how just well, well, it wasn't good. Um, and how that transition was not kind of cohesive. And then now it was from one of our Q&A programs, I think last Sunday, um, that that's why, or one of the reasons why James Buchanan is not remembered as a good president uh, in most cases. Um, so I think it can affect the legacy of the outgoing president, um, but also obviously it can affect the governing ability of the president-elect. Um, but I wanted to show just a, a quick um, video of uh, UVA's uh, Barbara Miller, who's, um, who's done extensive research on the presidential, the history of presidential transitions. And she talks about kind of what makes a good transition, what makes a bad transition, and some examples of that. Uh, and, and so I was asked to, to think about well, what, what, were the, what was the best transition in history and what was the worst? Well, it's usually easy when you're talking about anything related to the presidency and a president coming into office in terms of the worst situation is the Civil War period. And obviously that transition from Buchanan to Lincoln, where the country is literally breaking apart and sliding into Civil War, has to be the worst. So we, we hear about Lincoln setting up his uh, team of rivals, the, the famous Doris Kearns Goodwin book and, and the movie made based on that book, uh, that Lincoln was trying as hard as he could to put together a team that even included his rivals or rivals among the, the, the various factions in the United States, and, and we give him credit for that, uh, and yet the country slid into civil war. So the number one challenge that any president has faced coming into office. Um, I suppose I would pick as, as, a, as a good transition and also a, a historical uh, pattern, if there is if there can be a pattern established, would be the fact that uh, the Reagan to Bush 41 uh, there have not been many sitting vice presidents who've succeeded 
uh, in being elected president. Uh, I think it was Martin Van Buren was the most recent one up until Bush 41. But I, I think it's helpful, obviously, if there has been a vice president under a president and you go from the same party to the same party and that vice president can carry forward. Obviously, Doug, that's part of the, the lesson I had referenced very earlier about looking at the challenges and some of the strategies and things that make it better. But I think it strikes home the point that the smoother the transition, the better both are really looked at. Uh, and the both, I mean, the, the country is better off at that point too, because it's a fully functioning government. And also, I mean, really, there's only one president at a time. So how does that transition work? And then that handoff, is it smooth? Is it not? Can there be cooperation between the two? And it brings up a lot of questions that students can really look at. Yeah, and so how important is the inaugural address then in terms of setting the stage for the president's term in office? I knew I was gonna forget about that one. <laughs> I got you. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so I, I, I think going back to, um, if, you, if you'll indulge me to the, uh, the Lincoln example. Um, so the Lincoln example is the inaugural inaugural address is kind of is really famous. It's kind of something that people uh, talk about in terms of trying to tie the country together during a, a fractured part. Um, so this is uh, a clip of Susan Shulton from the University of Delaware, or sorry, Denver, um, who talks about that transition, uh, sorry, the inauguration and how it was viewed at the time. Susan Shulton, what was he saying there and how was it received? Oh, that speech is, is just so rich. Uh, you could spend weeks on it with students because there's so many dimensions. The first thing I want to go back to is what you remarked on earlier, how deeply polarized the country had become by March 4th, 1861. And so for Northerners, uh, that speech um, is seen in one way as an overture, as an olive branch, as um, essentially saying the ball's in your court, Southerners and secessionists, we are not provoking. And yet by Southerners, it was seen uh, pretty clearly as an assertion of federal power. So that's one thing to keep in mind. So I think it, it has some resonance today also, like how polarized we are now and then how people will view things through their own lens. And it really goes back to what we were talking about with the media too, and how people watch these inaugurations. So how many people are going to watch the entire thing um, versus how many people are just gonna watch sound bites, how many people are going to just read about that on their Twitter feed or uh, an article about it. Um, but that's one thing we really encourage teachers to have their students do is look at the entire inaugural, inaugural, inaugural address. Um, and they're generally only about like 20 minutes. So it's not like you're, it's not like the State of the Union where it's a whole class period. You can put this into like the first part of a class or however you want to do it. Um, but identifying what key parts are in different inaugurations. So we have a lesson that talks about, that has, I think going back to 1981 with the first Reagan um, inauguration and shows each of the, the subsequent ones up until 2017, um, and really has students look at what kind of rhetoric is used, what common, kind of common theme is used, or themes are used, um, how do they unify the nation, um, what topics are discussed. So you can look at it from a historical perspective if you're looking at um, like the Obama, uh, President Obama's 2009 one um, as the transition from uh, George W. Bush um, and how that reflects some of the, um, the economic situations that were going on there. 
Um, but one thing that students will notice is there's a key part in the beginning of it, which they talk about the unification of people. Um, so I think that's an important part and it really goes back to what your, um, your question was about setting the, the stage for the president's, president's term. Um, so one thing that we'll do um, going into uh, the January the 21 um, inauguration is we'll have viewing guides that we'll um, send out to uh, teachers that they can use um, where they can do some of this rhetorical analysis, some uh, look at the topics that are discussed, um, but it'll be a guide for teachers. Yeah, that'll be so great and really, really valuable and pertinent uh, for all of our teachers as we get closer to that time. I, I like the point that, you know, it is just 20 minutes, you know, it's, it's worthwhile. As you all mentioned earlier, this is a primary source. So, I mean, it, as it's coming to us, it's very important for us to really display this to our students because as you mentioned, I mean, the inaugural address, it does set the tone and it really does um, say a lot about what the president hopes to accomplish and what they uh, really want to focus on in their administration. And I think it's really neat in that short period of time, not just to evaluate what the person says, but how they say it. Mm. All of those cues that you're able to look at the body language, how they interact with each other, family members, guests, who attends, who's who's absent from attending, all of that just contributes to uh, the whole message of what it's gonna like look like moving forward. One thing yeah. that, as I was putting the, the, that lesson, the historical inauguration um, lesson together was how different presidents see the role of government too. So that's something that you see like during the Reagan administrations uh, and also the, the first George Bush, like the limited role of government versus when you go into the Clinton administration, the Obama one, it's a little more flexible and it's a little more emphasis on government. But that's something that is pretty uh, clear in the inaugurations. Um, and it's something that students can really look for too and then have their own debates or their own discussions on what should the role of government be. Mm. And that'll be so interesting too. We were just chatting about this earlier, just how this is going to even look in our virtual uh, 2020 pan or 2021, but uh, 2021 pandemic world and what this will actually look like as it plays out. So uh, I'm sure we're all going to be turning to C-SPAN to make sure that <laughs> we can uh, watch every second of it because it will be historic for sure. Um, so we are getting to the last part of today's episode, and we are going to spend a couple of minutes just answering questions from students around the state of Virginia about the upcoming transition of executive power. So Tom and Pam, feel free to jump in on any of these questions, okay? So, uh, and uh, there's no right or wrong answer here. We're just throwing these out at you um, at the moment. So our first question uh kind of deals with personnel. So as Biden rolls out uh, his cabinet nominees, who can we expect to see in terms of personnel? And what can we expect to see in terms of the Senate's response to confirming uh, these nominations? Yeah. Um, so I, th I think a lot of that is going to depend on, well, it's, some of it's being announced now. So like today, the Secretary of Defense was announced uh, earlier, was either last week or this week, um, his economic team, and then last or two weeks ago, his national security team. So he's rolling it out. Um, and then for each of these, and this is nice for teachers, um, he's having a um, 
not so much a ceremony, but an announcement speech for each of them where he's announcing them and then he's talking about what his policies are for that thing. So for um, his COVID response team, he talked about his first hundred days and what that would look like. And then he talked, uh, then he introduced um, uh, Javier uh, Becerra, who's the incoming um, or the nominee for HHS. So he, uh, President-elect Biden's going through these right now. Um, it'll really, a lot of it will depend on um, whether these uh, get, or sorry, a lot of um, these questions on whether or not they'll be confirmed, it will depend on uh, the Georgia uh, election, the runoff election too, uh, with control of the Senate. Um, so right now I think they're at 4850 for the control of the Senate um, with the two Georgia races uh, up for grabs on January 5th, I believe. Um, but uh, I think it's important for teachers to know also um, that this process starts before uh, actual inauguration. So the vetting process, also the process of doing hearings, confirmation hearings. Um, so there's a clip of John, Don Ritchie, who's a US Senate historian, um, going or talking about that process. Um, if I can play that. Now we have a shorter interregnum between the election and the inauguration. The president's elected in November. He's going to be sworn in in January. Uh, during the, this period, the president will be making decisions as to who's going to be their cabinet officers. In, in the year 2000, that was a very truncated situation because, because we didn't decide the election until well into December. And so it left less than a month for the pre incoming president to have a cabinet in place. Uh, but you have transition teams that you're working on potential candidates. Uh, they will begin then to vet those candidates. The FBI will look into their backgrounds. Uh, and then once they have nominations, they will uh, submit them to the, uh, to the Senate. Now, the Senate, the incoming Senate will deal with all of this, but they will begin uh, several weeks before the president is sworn in. The incoming Congress uh, constitutionally begins on January the 3rd. In this case, it will begin on the Monday following that. Uh, but the president won't be sworn in until January the 20th. And so in that interim, there will be a lot of nominations, a lot of things coming up to the committees. And committees will be holding hearings and looking into those individuals. Uh, and sometimes by the So you can see a lot of this is done beforehand. And you can really ask your students, like, why would you want all the confirmations happening beforehand? versus after inauguration. And is that an appropriate way to do that? Um, so I think it's important for students to know that process, especially as um, you see these announcements being rolled out, um, like what that means, when do they take office? How does that uh, confirmation process work? Yeah, and sort of speaking of time, that kind of relates to our second question that we have from a student. So uh, one of our students is wondering, since the current administration has refused to coordinate with Biden's transition team, and also, I mean, given that that question was given to us uh, earlier this week, you might there might be some relevant updates to kind of add into that. But since uh, when this question was submitted, uh, the current administration had refused to coordinate with Biden's transition team, how far behind are they going to be 
comparatively, you know, and could this put Biden behind in terms of his goals? And what does that sort of look like uh, in relation to them sort of getting off the ground running on January 20th? Yeah, I think you had mentioned kind of some of the comparisons between the year 2000 and, and 2001 transition and now. Um, so I think that's kind of shapes it because I don't think that the GSA certified or ascertained the transition until mid-December. So that was a little later. Um, so I think that's something that students can use really to judge current uh, transitions. Um, so there's a clip of Karen Holt, if, you, uh, if I can share it with you, talking about that transition and kind of what people can learn from that um, and what happened and what um, uh, what comparisons and what parallels there are now? Transition team. What did we learn in that 2000-2001 experience there with uh, George W. Bush winning the presidency and uh, his transition delayed by, what, five weeks or so? Did that yes. affect the, uh, the start of his administration early on, the appointment of some of those 4,000 uh, appointed positions, as you mentioned? Yes, it did, especially on those that had to be Senate confirmed, because, of course, before being nominated to the U.S. Senate, those nominees have to undergo thorough background checks by the FBI and a range of others. That delayed that process. Now, we should be clear, though, in neither 2000, in neither 2000 nor right now did that mean that no transition planning was going on. In fact, it was in 2000. It was being, being done while the campaign was going on so that if George W. Bush won, he would be ready to take office on January 20th. If we remember back to, to late 1990, or late in 2000, we also remember that W. Bush had a kind of helpful head of his transition team while they were waiting for the results from, from the Supreme Court to be issued. And that, of course, was Vice President-elect then, Dick Cheney, who had been a chief of staff in the Ford White House and was quite familiar with the rhythms of the federal government. So they had some transition planning going on. The Biden transition team has been working since the spring as well. And head of the transition team, or at least co-chair of the transition team, is a man named Ted Kaufman, who has a long history with Vice President Biden, and in fact co-wrote the existing statute on, uh, that updates the Transition Act of 1963 that was passed in 2015. So I think that's an important comparison to look at. And while the parallels aren't exact, you can see some of the things that both administrations have, have going for them and also some of the limitations that they have too. Um, so for example, like she mentioned about uh, Vice President Cheney um, being a chief of staff previously, but you could also make the, uh, the point that Vice President Biden was vice president previously too, so and only four years ago. So, there's some parallels you can look at, and I think it's really good for students to kind of take this and look at them and kind of chew on this um, on their own too, to make these assumptions. Yeah, that's great. Any Anything that you wanted to add, Pam? I didn't mean to cut no. you off if I did. Oh, no, 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 not at all. I'm just thinking a lot of different things. I'm thinking even uh, the transition, and this is just kind of a, an add-on, I'm thinking about you know all the different transitions, transition, even uh, if there's party to party transition, 
same party or if there's one party to another party transition, you know, what that, what that phase looks like. So um, there might be a Democratic or, or Republican administration in place. And let's say another Democratic or Republican uh, administration is coming in. What does that look like? So for example, let's say Hillary Clinton had won this the last time around and, and was shifting gears with President Obama. I know we had a clip somewhere about that, but it, they talked about how this would not be a third President Obama term, it would be a first Hillary Clinton term because you know, his, the people he has in place might not necessarily stay on. You know, that's up to her and her team and her administration and, and what that looks like. So I also find that that piece very uh, interesting for students to take a look at and uh, examine what that looks like. I think also um, one thing as I was going through some of the, these clips that you'll see that a lot of the same people who were in the or the, who are in the incoming Biden administration um, are more are people who are carryovers from the, the Biden administration or, or sorry, the Obama administration or the Clinton administration. Um, so you see these people who kind of every eight years or every four years come back into some sort of um, position. And you could really frame that with your students of why that is, what's the benefit of that, what's the disadvantage of that. And is that good for the, uh, the incoming administration or uh, I mean, there's a number of different ways you can really look at that. So if you are interested in, if you're a teacher and you're interested in finding out more about uh, some of the resources we have, um, we have a newsletter that we send out every every week. Um, so this is going to be curated um, based on theme. So like, I think, I mean, kind of what we were talking about this next week's is going to be media literacy and uh, social media. Um, last week's was the economy and uh, like monetary and fiscal policy and the impact of the, the coronavirus. So every week um, during the school year, we'll have a, uh, an e-newsletter that's sent out um, that features some of the topical issues and some of the um, like historical context surrounding it. Teachers wanna get involved with C-SPAN Classroom. We love to hear from them. If you go to our website, our C-SPAN Classroom website, um, you can access all of our free resources, but you can also become a member. So you can register there. Registration is free, but that will provide you with that weekly email that Tom just mentioned, where we push out new content that we make, featured resources for topic areas that you might be teaching, information about a professional development that will be upcoming. So that's a, a good way to stay in touch with us. You can follow us at C-SPAN Classroom on Facebook and Twitter, but if you email us, educate at c-span.org. Craig, Tom, and I are constantly checking that email and we'd love to connect with you to uh, host professional development if you want or answer any questions that you might have. Thank you both so much for being on this episode, Tom and Pam. I can't say it again enough, just how incredibly knowledgeable both of you are, both about this topic, but also just in how to apply it to the classroom, which is what 
we're all looking for right now. Um, so many good ideas were shared and we just appreciate you and the C-SPAN team so much for being with us today. Um, and listeners, don't forget to follow the Virginia Council for Social Studies on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Our handle is VA Social Studies, all one word. And of course, follow C-SPAN as well and sign up for their newsletter and become a member. It is all free and amazing, amazing resources there for you. And if you liked today's episode, subscribe and give us a five-star review on iTunes as it helps others find our podcast. Thank you. And we will see you next time on Content to Classroom.